Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to Talking Infrastructure. My name's James Banks and I'm Head of External Relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today's podcast is focusing on the much-discussed topic of autonomous vehicles, specifically the impact the technology will have on our infrastructure. Joining me today to discuss this subject are three extremely well-qualified experts. Firstly, to look at the legal and regulatory impacts, we have Burgess Salmon Senior Associate Lucy Pegler. Lucy works in Burgess Salmon's technology and communications team, specialising in technology, communications, data protection and cyber security. She leads on Burgess Salmon's involvement in a number of connected and automated vehicle, CAV, projects, contributing to the development of the legal framework, particularly in relation to the use of CAV data. Our next guest is Dr. Graham Parkhurst, Professor of Sustainable Mobility and Director of the Centre for Transport and Society at the University of the West of England in Bristol, which is where we are today. So thank you very much, Graham, for, for looking after us this morning. Graham has 25 years experience in transport and mobility studies. His current research interests are examining the wider implications of the trends to greater automation, electrification, flexibility and the use of digital technologies in the transport sector. Finally, joining us from ACOM is Technical Director George Lunt. George is currently running the ACOM-led Capri Consortium, which is an autonomous vehicle project which aims to build passenger, regulatory and market trust in autonomous pods as a practical, safe and affordable way to travel. Um, I should also add that uh, both Lucy and Graham are, are also part of the Capri project. Um, so welcome, everybody, this morning. Thank you. Morning. Morning. George, uh, can I start with you? We're not just focusing on Capri this morning, but it, as it connects all of us, it would be good to get a bit of background. What is the Capri project? What, what are its aims? What is it doing? Where are we with it? Okay, yeah, so Capri is a central government part-funded research and development project. There are, well, it starts off with 19 project partners altogether, and it's the partners, a mixture of industry, um, university, academia, small small businesses, large businesses and, and public sector, really all these different organisations coming together to research and develop both the technical aspects of connected and, and, and automated vehicles, but also researching some of the regulatory, the safety, the societal impacts and the business case and business model behind that as well. So it's really sort of pulling together all the different aspects in order to understand both short term, medium and longer term impacts of connected and, and autonomous vehicles. More specifically, we're looking at a, a pod and we're developing, it's come out from, from the Heathrow system on a, on, on a guideway, but we've taken that four-seater four pod and taken it on road and the real, I guess, practical objective is, is to try and trial this pod in a public road, which we're hoping to do, well, late, later in March, all, all being well. So um, in terms of some practical trials, we've completed um, three public trials so far two in Bristol, one at Filton Airfield, the disused airfield site, and more recently at uh, Cribs Causeway at, at the Mall, and that's with, with, with people there. 
And then in London as well, we've we've completed a trial in September at the Olympic Park. Again, operating in operating in a public environment where people are able to interact, and we can we can test the technology, but we can also test people's reaction to those to those services as well. And our final trial is is going to be in place at the Olympic Park, um, as I said, um, at the end of March. I, I will come back to Capri because I, I, I want to hear about the trials and, and how it's gone, people's reaction, etc. But but before we do that. The question that everyone asks me whenever we talk about autonomous vehicles is, when are we going to get it? When are we going to see it? Graham, how far away is this technology? So this isn't a simple question about looking at the rate of technological development and attempting to predict forwards when we would achieve a certain state. It's more complex than that. The answer to that question really comes down to when do we want it to happen and when could it happen? In the sense that the technology will develop to a certain extent. And if we look at the different systems, they can already claim 90, 95%, even close to 100% uh, operation without needing a human to intervene, but only under constrained environments. So the constrained environments part of that is how much do we have to change the wider world, the built environment, to enable these vehicles to operate without human involvement? How much resource do we want to throw at this as a society? I would compare it perhaps to the moon landing in some ways. When President Kennedy decided that the Americans were going to put somebody onto the the moon, that became an absolute matter of national priority in order to achieve that, and it was done. Now, I'm not saying we should do that, with these uh, connected automated vehicle technologies, but it might be that we would need a strong policy steer in order to achieve this by, say, a certain date. So it's like being putting a man on the moon. Okay, good. That's a good, <laughs> good, that's a good way to start things. Lucy, surely, I mean, from your side of things, everyone talks about the technology, but the legal implications of bringing this kind of stuff in is, is, is huge, surely. I think there's a significant body of work that needs to be done, but the pleasing thing is that's already happening and the UK as a market is recognised as one of the world leaders in putting in place the policy and the regulation that's needed to support the successful adoption of automated vehicles on UK roads and indeed it's one of the government's main priorities in terms of ensuring that we stay at the forefront of that market and last year KPMG put out its AVRI report which said that we were kind of second in the legal and regulatory pillar so we're definitely well on our way and um, supported by the huge work and really important work that the Law Commission of England and Wales and the Scottish Law Commission are doing to look at the body of regulation that we have today and what we will need in place to ensure that law is an enabler to the technology. So I think there's a common misconception about law in that it lags behind technology and one of the things we're really keen as a firm but also more generally I think the Law Commission probably share this view don't want to speak for them but but law should you know unlock the opportunities and and that is certainly I think where we're going with with this and and the huge work that's being done to shape that kind of policy and regulation to fit where we are now with the technology. Already we've I've heard a number of terms banded around and and before we started recording I heard even more from you Lucy that was a a mind opener. We talk about pods, we talk about automated vehicles, we've got driverless vehicles, driverless cars. Is there an issue here with terminology and confusion and and actually setting out what what are we talking about? Yeah I think so I mean when when you're talking about 
driverless cars, driverless vehicles, but then you talk about CAVs, connected and autonomous vehicles, and then there's, there's all sorts of acronyms which are out there. I'll throw in another ac- acronym, but I find, it as a nice, I find it as a nice way to try and sort of partition and, un- and understand the technology in, in, in its different forms. And that's to sort of think about the acronym ACES, A-C-E-N-S. And then this sort of breaks down some of the technology aspects. So the first part, A, is automated. And by automated, particularly in terms of vehicles, we're talking about vehicles being able to drive themselves without without a human intervention. So Graham talked about some of this levels of, of automation um, in certain restricted environments and so on. Some levels of automation might require a driver to take on the steering wheel, for example, in, in certain situations. But other forms of automation just wouldn't have a steering wheel in the vehicle whatsoever. And... What's the benefits of, of, of the automation, particularly in the longer term, if the safety benefits are, are clearly demonstrated, then there then number of accidents, as a famous statistic, about 90-95% of road accidents are currently caused by human error. If that can be taken out, then there's potentially significant benefits. And then the automation side as well, in theory, could bring down the cost of, for example, public transport or access to public transport as well through these automated services and then the efficiencies that that can bring. The C part is connected. So vehicles are connected to each other and similarly they can be connected to the infrastructure and connected to, to people around them. So a vehicle doesn't have to be automated in order for it to be connected and, and vice versa. But, but what does the connection do? It enables vehicles to perhaps drive closer together to each other in order to have efficiencies. The vehicles could be communicating to a wider network management system and you can get far more efficiencies that way. Or even if you're driving in a vehicle, you could see if there's an accident ahead, you'd know perhaps to, to um, drive a bit more slowly as, as, as then you're approaching. So that's the connected side of vehicles, which is very important and also is considered to be more short term in terms of the rollout of these vehicles. And it's, it's a key enabler for the automated aspects, which would happen further down the line, sort of 10, 15 years. Third part E is electric. So lots of these automated vehicles that we talked about, we talk about environmental benefits of autonomous vehicles. Actually, largely that would be to do with the electric aspect of the vehicles and the fact that they are could be fueled by greener forms of technology and, and, and fuel, and then the infrastructure that then need, needs to go with that. And then really all these three key elements then bring together the S of the ACES, the shared, and this is that under a more sort of automated, connected environment, then we'll probably see less car ownership in the future, more people sharing vehicles or even leasing vehicles on, on that basis. And this whole sort of shared environment, we're seeing it with some of the taxi operators, for example, at the moment, and these shared services. But that's potentially another aspect which, which would come in. And all these four provide huge potential benefits, but then when you look at them, they can also provide some potential disbenefits as well if they're not implemented and not, and not put out in the right way. And I think that's, that's the key aspect, is to understand these these four areas and really understand what needs to be done in terms of the policy, the regulatory, the infrastructure and the societal aspects to actually make sure that this technology does provide the right benefits to the right people. If I could pick up on one point here, I think there's an interesting policy question around and merges from a contradiction really between connectivity and autonomy. So the idea, the myth of the, the open road, a driver who takes a decision independently of any other agent on that road is really very much the vision of a, a free motoring environment. Actually, that doesn't exist very often. And will it exist in the future? So an entirely autonomous vehicle, which makes its own decisions, is that really what we want from a public policy point of view in the future? Most people think that we need a more collaborative 
mobility environment and that actually vehicles would be connected via some kind of management system and indeed not be making autonomous decisions really but they would be automated agents expressing via the the human occupants of course what they would like to achieve with that mobility but negotiating that and actually collaborating and maybe not taking the shortest route if that's going to help reduce the spread of congestion across the network or indeed perhaps uh, avoiding a particular route because there's some major uh, event going on and that kind of thing. So in some ways you could see that what we have now with traffic navigation systems that would all become integrated and actually we'd have a much more cooperative transport system in the future. I think the interesting question around that is how would you actually achieve that sort of rerouting and that network optimum, if you like, as opposed to the individual optimum? And most individuals want to take the fastest route in order to get from where they want to, and a relatively small proportion might be then willing to take a hit, for example. I think this is where, in particular, some form of road user charging in order to inform network management particularly with going down the electric route and fuel duty and things becoming harder to then implement in order to to get the revenue back, but then in particular also to help manage the network. Then, for example, if you could encourage, incentivise other routes, which perhaps not necessarily the the quickest route, by a lower cost, and then with the automated system, the vehicle's able, able to take these and so on, then we suddenly start moving into a much more... You might think the world is automated, you don't have any control at all, but actually if the network operators are then controlling the cost of the network, then they all of a sudden then have tremendous control and able to manage and optimise their, their, their own network as, as they would see fit in order to implement their policy decisions. I think here, when we talk about all of this and the benefits, there's, for me there feels like there's a big piece of work to do in terms of public education of the technologies. And you know we talk about... Kind of road pricing as one mechanism but I imagine I'm defer to Graham on some of this that if there is a conversation about charging mechanisms in order to spread the load of automated vehicle traffic etc part of that conversation has to be ensuring that the people that we're ultimately putting in place the technology in the vehicles for understand what it is that we're giving them in terms of a solution how that might benefit them why they might want to use it instead of keeping what they they know i think in part that comes back to your initial point around terminology is that we we do use a huge selection of of terminology and and having been involved in four of the innovate uk cab projects we use different terminology in different projects but we mean the same things and when we're all talking to each other we know what we mean because we've been involved in these projects for for a good number of years but that might not necessarily be the same for the people who haven't been involved in the projects but want to understand about how the technology works and what the solution is that we're proposing so I, I do think there's a, a piece of work to be done around ensuring that we're we're consistent in how we talk about mm. the technology and the solutions that that are being proposed. I'm interested to find out more about you know the, the people element to be honest are we taking people with us? Are we are we ensuring that this is a technology that people want and there is a demand for? What is the reaction of people? I mean, obviously, recently in the Capri trial, George, I, mean, mm-hmm. I came and visited it a couple of weeks ago now, and saw members of the public getting in pods for the first time. Uh, what was their reaction? Is it is it do they see it as a gimmick or do they see it as a viable uh, solution? Do they want it? 
Well, the overwhelming feedback we get from the public trials is that the people are tremendously accepting and interested, and they, they can particularly they can see the benefits that those individuals would have. I mean, Graham's done lots of research on this in terms of the trials, so you can come in as well. But particularly, there was one um, lady who was who was in a who was in a wheelchair and immediately saw the, the, the potential benefits that that could bring. Someone who couldn't drive for medical reasons, for example, saw that side of things. But then. Other people saw productivity benefits rather than sitting in traffic. Then, then some of the things that they that they could be doing otherwise rather than driving. So, I mean, those members of the public, okay, arguably, are they quite self-selective because for the trials that we've been doing, they're going to be people who are interested in and going to be coming in. But from my point of view and on the project side, the overwhelming attitudes from the public are: are they want the technology, but perhaps they they're not quite sure when that might happen and, and how things might come in. I mean, Graham's done a lot more research on this on the project and wider as well. Well, there's been a lot of studies around the world. Um, we've contributed to that, but there have been many studies that have shown that the concept of automation or autonomous vehicles does generate strong reactions. And broadly speaking, we are divided or we take different broad views on whether this is a good thing or not. I'd hesitate to say it's completely polarised because we know that as people do and we've shown this in our own studies that as people experience the technology they do become more favorable in general towards it not universally but most people will be increase their level of trust in in the systems and trust of course is one of the big factors but it's broader than that and i think a lot of people have some level of contingent acceptance of the new technologies they understand there are benefits they understand they could be cost and they want to really understand how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not ju- just looking at the overall concept only takes mm-hmm. us so far. Yes, it's the specifics, isn't it, as to how it will actually impact and how, how it will work in practice. Yeah, so uh, the cyclist wants to know if um, they're going to have uh, more respect from an automated vehicle than a lot of human drivers. The pedestrian wants to know how he or she's going to cross the road Drivers want to know if they'll be able to switch it off or not. That's one of the contingent concepts currently. That's a very tricky one because the whole idea of this uh, super connected, efficient system is completely undermined if individuals decide, okay, they're going to have this technology in the car like cruise control, but not actually use it. So there's a lot more debate to be had around this. And uh, it's not a simple, do people like it or not? I think it really matters how we do it. And the public needs to be in there, being part of that, being informed by experts, engaging with politicians, but also society needs to decide what it wants from its transport system. Lucy, from a legal side, it must be very challenging to try and keep up with you know this is something that is, is changing is evolving mm-hmm. it must be very difficult to keep up with it to make sure that we are creating legislation that's fit for the future for, for a technology that is yet to be defined i suppose i think it's you know there, there are challenges to it but certainly for us it's one of the reasons that we got involved in the innovate uk funded projects from a very early stage so our, our first one uh, was four or five years ago now it's the, the ventura project which was a southwest based project And part of our reasoning for that is, you know, as lawyers, we want to understand the technology that's being developed and and actually working in as part of these consortia and and working with the different partners, we can see kind of the different strands coming together so that when we're thinking about 
what it is that needs to change we can apply it to that real world environment we can understand and we've got the perspective that's coming in from from the different partners and we have those those channels of communication open you know there is a lot of existing law around transport and passenger services and part of the work that's going on at the moment is understanding whether those are fit for purpose as we move towards automated vehicles and if they're not what needs to change but maintaining the flexibility so that we can you know you made a point earlier on about future proofing so that we're not kind of stifling innovation or the ability to adopt the technologies by putting kind of law in place that doesn't enable that uh, which comes back to my earlier point of you know our view is that law is very much an enabler and I think the significant work that's going on at the moment kind of demonstrates the UK's approach, the government's approach to that. You mentioned earlier about the UK being sort of you know up there with the top early adopters, if you will. I mean, is that across everything? Must cross technology, across with legal, with government, with infrastructure? Are we leading the way, or are we just competing? Yeah, I mean, from the way that where the areas that governments decided to invest, particularly in the test beds, so these are physical test beds to and digital test beds as well, where you can test things in in an often simulated environment. Then a lot of investment has gone on gone on there in terms of generating that ecosystem, both in a very closed environment, but then more sort of public area. So that sort of whole test bed environment, I think we are one of the world leaders in having access to vehicle manufacturers can come in and, and, and test their technology, for example. Lucy talked about the legislative side of things and some of the work that, that we're doing there, and you can sort of see that being talked about on, on, on the global stage as well and, and feeding into some of that some of that discussion. And I, I think it's, it's important, though, that we don't, as UK leaders, think that we are just the leaders as well. It's really, really important that as a, as a nation <coughs> that we are that we are open to collaboration, particularly, I don't want to say the B word on this, but particularly on we're doing some work with the European Commission at the moment, looking at their research and innovation agenda going to rise in Europe over the next seven years, and in particular their strategy over what's called CCAM, which is the same as same as their, their CAV strategy, basically. It's, it's going to be very, very important that the UK is, in my view, is, is part of that research and innovation agenda going forwards as well. So we can be the leaders, but we can... We, society, can be much better as well by collaborating at the same time. I think one of the things that's really struck me in being involved in several of these projects now with members of the public is how much they do see this as an opportunity to Mm. change the way that we do transport and mobility. And whilst I think the UK has been very well represented in developing these concepts as an economic, industrial opportunity, I do think government needs to take more of a lead in thinking through how this fits with climate change avoidance policy and air quality management policy and we really need in my view to accept that this is going to have to be a future with fewer vehicles on the roads because even if they're electric they're still going to need to be powered by energy which is going to be in short supplies if it's coming from carbon neutral sources and uh, electric vehicles still produce various kinds of particulate emission which are not good for public health so we can't pretend that just by moving to automated mobility even though there are potentially big benefits we've solved all the problems and one of the key challenges from my point of view is can we persuade people to share vehicles more mm-hmm. We've got used to this idea that each family or each household has one or multiple cars and each person decides to set off in a private vehicle, 
make the journey on a door-to-door basis. There's growing signs that particular groups or in particular contexts, there is greater willingness now to uh, engage with shared mobility services. But ironically, if you shift those to an automated model, taking the driver out of the vehicle, then you've removed the sort of figure of authority, the taxi driver or bus driver, who might be seen as the umpire of the space, if you like. So then who's responsible for the environment? Is it going to be some kind of remote steward in a control centre who ensures that normal standards of behaviour in society are, are respected? And how do we inspire confidence in people that are willing to do this? And uh, there's a bigger debate here. You know, in, in one of our research events, somebody said, oh, yes, I'll be happy to share a vehicle as long as I can decide who I'm sharing with. Mm. And, of course, that takes us into very difficult places. So we do need to be having a discussion about this. Any other potential pitfalls of, of this adoption? Of this, this sort of, well, we look at the sort of the Capri connected pods. I mean, I put you on the phone the other day, you were talking about, well, actually, people might be walking less. It's a risk and it's a difficult one to solve. How do you make you know, what we call a last mile service mm. available to, to people, perhaps because they have limited walking ability or it's really chucking it down in the rain without then encouraging everybody to use it all of the time and it becomes the accepted thing to do, perhaps because they've never walked it so they don't know the way so they never try walking it. We find travel behaviour can be quite habitual. So it would need encouragement, maybe charges would be part of that or turning it around the other way perhaps mobility points so you get more points every time you walk but you can then spend those on the days when it's raining something like that we need we need to be uh, creative in general terms there is a concern that if you make mobility cheaper because you're not having to pay anyone to drive and perhaps because it's electric which tends to be quite expensive in terms of assets but relatively cheap then to operate that we could see a massive growth in demand for travel and that's why I was emphasizing before this need to share because it's not just that we're doing things badly now there are simulation studies out there that show that traffic could easily double if we have this uh, double whammy of making mobility cheaper and easier. So for me the key part is integrating these new mobility services if you like the shared services then with a mass transit type infrastructure as well. So the, the kind of CAV technology that we're talking about is designed for more, should we say, lower occupancy before maybe up to up to small minibus style, style vehicle. But if those vehicles are then allowing better integration up to the first, not just the first mile, but even up to the first five miles of some of that, mm. that original journey, which people would find very difficult to make and they take the private car by choice. But if it makes that transition much easier and they can access mass transit far more easily, which is then at a good cost, then that's where you really get the benefits from, from these services. And I guess that's the right, there's the Goldilocks conditions, if you like. It needs to be not too much, not too little. It needs to be just right in order to get that, that sweet spot, which enables overall travel and congestion and so on, the environmental impacts coming down, but still allowing people access to, um, to transport and being able to move around and be accessible. How do you see this technology, technology being rolled out? How do you see, you know, what will be the first environments where we see this technology being used? I think in particular it's talking about the automated side of things and, and, and driverless. It's particularly areas where it's going to be relatively easy from a safety point of view and a, and, and a technology point of view for it, for it to be implemented. So 
in those areas we see places where perhaps it's on private land and so that the, the landowners are able to have a bit more control over over what's implemented and, and how that's put in place but then in associated with that it's areas where there is perhaps less mixed-use traffic lower amounts of traffic in, in those particular areas as well so it's relatively easy and in and at the very very short-term area it's where perhaps you can segregate these services whether it be physical or, or, or just through a line or something. So those vehicles are operating very much in their own or they only have to interact with other autonomous vehicles as well. So some good examples of that would be airside at an airport, for example. Take a more jovial example, a theme park or something and, and, and something to be able to operate and move those, those things around. University campus, for example, all these kind of environments. And we're sort of seeing this already, some of these early adopters and people that, that are very interested in that. But in particular, it's those sites that have an existing issue that needs to be solved, which the technology can help solve, which often is cost, but then convenience for the people that are using the services as well. And then you'd probably then see, and that's probably, in my view, five, ten years' time for these things to then become sort of rolled out and much better established. And then in terms of city centre, you know, a whole world of, of autonomous pods and vehicles all moving around, that's much longer term. And we're probably, in terms of a large penetration rate of those vehicles we're talking at least 15-20 years time when we're sort of seeing that level but it's, it's going to be very much a stepping stone process from where we are now to mm-hmm. that to that final goal if that actually is a goal and we're not quite sure you know where, where things are going as Graham said I think it's important to define what we want to achieve first rather than letting the technology take us on, on, it, on its own path as well. It's also possible to think in terms of particular social groups that might be early adopters as well as sort of locations. So perhaps the foremost of these currently, and uh, Lucy and I were involved in a project called Flourish mm-hmm. a few years ago, which was really looking at older citizens and connected and automated technologies. And the big focus there is retirement complexes, where they can be quite large areas of land and in order for people to have easy mobility around those sites, and then the cost can be bundled into the, the general cost associated with it, living in those uh, kind of environments. And then there's interest around younger people as well, where I wouldn't necessarily say that they're never going to learn to drive, but certainly the typical age of learning to drive has moved from late teens to early Mm. 20s and is now perhaps heading towards late 20s even. So potentially uh, in urban areas you might have young populations willing to use. So what are our cities going to look like in the future then with this? How are roads going to transform? You know, what's your vision? So we go back to the original point, what do you want that vision to be? And rather than saying how's the technology going to actually evolve that, I mean, if we're serious about the particularly the carbon agenda and trying to reduce reduce emissions in, in, in that context, we absolutely have to be moving towards lower levels of transport, particularly in our, in our, in our cities in the future. And so that's the starting point. That, that's what we want to achieve. But we also still want, we don't want to be cutting off our cities for any kind of access to, mm-hmm. to transport, cutting off certain people, certain social groups and so on. So I think just very conceptually, I see a more sort of a, very much a, a hub and spoke type system where we might have people being as I said before, moving to um, sort of mass transit areas and then sort of the traditional rail and bus movements and still underground st- still still playing a big, big role. And these sort of autonomous systems are more the are more the enabler for that in order to allow, allow people to move to them. And then that can then allow a much more open city, if you like, and, mm. and a, mu- a much more pleasant environment. That's the vision anyway, in terms, rather than grid, gridlock of congestion and all over the place. Well, I think it's an interesting question for the UK because... You know, we are such a diverse country in terms of 
the geography and, and the different areas that we have. So you know, even just looking at, at cities, Bristol's needs are very different to the needs of Milton Keynes and the infrastructure that, that sits within Bristol is, is very different. So what it ultimately looks like is is a really big question. And you think we're talking about urban areas, but if you go into Scotland, you have some very kind of remote rural areas and the needs there are very different. And the breadth of the question, I think, is an interesting one. And it goes back to taking people along and, and understanding what it is that people want from the service and thinking about mobility and how people want want to move around and that's a generational question as well because what younger adults want or what teenagers and children think now is going to be very different to what mm. the older adults are, are thinking to me it just throws up so many questions i mean just you talking now i just thought about well, like, you know if we were in, if i was in a pod in the pod i mean it wouldn't obviously technology would never hit anybody but if it hit somebody and i was in a pod would I somehow have any liability? There must be so many questions that, that remain unanswered. And I think there are questions that we are answering, but they are questions that the public wants the answers yeah. to. And so the question you raise now is an interesting one because you're, you're thinking in terms of the very traditional way that you, know, you have the driver of a vehicle. If the vehicle hits someone, then the driver is responsible. Mm. And, and then you have the areas of grey where you look at kind of what role the pedestrian might have played in in that accident and we're already starting to move towards kind of understanding what that looks like in the sense that we have the automated and electric vehicles act that talked about who's liable when an automated vehicle has an accident and it's in that kind of this the system is operating the vehicle and that started to set kind of a very clear idea about how that would work so the insurer pays basically mm. and then you start taking into account things like contributory negligence so what were the other actors in the, in the scenario doing at the time but that comes down to i think in answering your your question it's that is another piece around making sure that we are communicating with the public about how these things will change so that people understand the impact on them so I hear questions like, well, I still need to have a driving licence. Well, if you're not in charge of a vehicle, if you're not doing any, you're not exercising any control, you're just sat as as a passenger, then no, you don't need a driving licence. But then there's questions about, well, who is in charge of that vehicle? And we need to be very clear about how we answer those questions. And I think importantly, we need to be very consistent. And that all comes back down to things like, what is it that people want? and the terminology that we use so that we're all using the same terminology to describe the same thing. And I think that's where everything pulls together. And I think the the consulting projects that we're all involved in are a really good example of, you know, it can't just be the lawyers doing this and it can't just be kind of the academics and it can't just be the private sector. It really has to be a collaborative effort and we have to be joined by the public in that. And that's a really big piece of the puzzle. And I think we're working towards that and making good progress but yeah Yeah, there um, is probably still a but (laughs) no i think it's very interesting particularly that example because you can make all the rules and regulations but ultimately we're also talking about social practices Mm. so what does happen if a pod is involved in a collision Mm. on some dark road perhaps with nobody else around what is the role of the occupant you could perhaps generate rules around who's supposed to call the emergency services. Hope the pod would do that automatically. But do they have some kind of duty of care as a citizen 
to the other people involved. You could imagine that a public transport vehicle might be involved in a collision currently and the driver would be there and would naturally take responsibility if he or she was in a fit state to so do but or is it down to some uh, citizen enterprise to help manage these situations so we'll solve all these things but we have to be clear that society and mobility systems new technologies they they co-evolve yeah Mm -hmm. and you can't just say right we're going to fix all the rules and this is how it's going to work we'll see how it's going to work and we're going to have to adjust things as we go along we probably won't get it right first time what are the challenges i mean for people who think are worried about being in a vehicle and hitting somebody, there's there's a lot of work to be done there, isn't there? Yes, I mean, that's just one specific example and it would need uh, careful working through and one could work out rules. But more generally, we're going to be using these vehicles in different ways. When when the private car emerged as a, a mass market phenomenon, it changed the way that people do things, the way they shop, um, the way they arrange family journeys, We moved away from public transport, which even affected the future design of our cities. And we'll see these kind of phenomena emerging again. So some of the really interesting questions is for me around suburbia. Suburbia was a phenomenon that grew up around the the private car. How's that going to work in the future? Mm. Well, we'll be having pods running around these suburbs to connect people to the main public transport routes? Will people accept that? Or they will still be demanding that door-to-door service, in which case we need so many pods that perhaps we'll have just as much traffic as before. So those are the kind of big questions we need to, to try to grapple with and come up with solutions that can contribute to the sustainable development of economy and society but uh, at the same time, uh, ensuring high quality of life for people. Mm. We're going to wrap up in a second, but if I could just quickly go around all of you and maybe just, it'd be great to hear if you just give me, we'll put you on the spot now, one big challenge and one thing that really excites you about this technology. George. Okay. The one big challenge is the technical challenge of actually achieving the driverless and connected elements that actually work in the way that we've described to achieve. But then... The one thing that excites me is if we can get that right, the potential benefits that that, that, that can bring to society, climate and the environment and so on is pretty staggering. So it's that double-edged sword. Mm. If you look down our typical residential streets, they are absolutely overwhelmed with private cars not going anywhere. How we quite allowed that situation to come about, I think, is a, is a great historical interest and clearly great benefits from that. But I think the real opportunity is that we can still achieve efficient mobility without having so much of our space given over to a transport system, which is frankly very inefficient if looked at the big scale, even if it works quite well, actually, for a lot of individuals, but by no means all individuals. So that's the opportunity. In terms of the major challenge, I really do think it's the one we were talking about before around are we willing to compromise a little bit on our journeys, perhaps taking a little bit longer, perhaps deviating slightly off our preferred route in order to achieve a level of a system efficiency. And perhaps it wouldn't need to be much of a deviation or much of a time delay. And to be honest, it might work better than the current situation where people sit in congestion. But actually selling that as an idea is tricky and we have to see if we can make that work. That's the big challenge. 
I think for me, the, the big challenge is making sure that we've got the physical infrastructure in place, things like connectivity, and, th- and that we, we've got the infrastructure in place to, to deliver the solution so that everyone is able to realise the same benefit. I shared George's views and, and the views expressed by Graham over the past half an hour, 40 minutes around the benefits that can be delivered to the public if we get this right. And Flourish was a project that really excited me, particularly in talking to the older adults who participated in the trials and, and hearing their views on the on the technology and, and just seeing from their perspective the opportunities that they thought these technologies would deliver to them. Fantastic. Good place to end things, I think. Lucy, Graham, George, thank you very much for, for contributing to today's podcast. A really interesting session. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Talking Infrastructure, then please subscribe, leave a review, and of course, tell your friends all about it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>